Good morning, Meadows. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you. Lord, this is not an easy text, but one that is in your word. And so I pray that you would give us clarity on what Jesus is saying. I pray that you would give us hope in what Jesus is saying. I pray that we would heed the warning of what Jesus is saying. Father, by your Spirit, may you continue to do a work in our hearts. May we receive your word. May you give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This past week at prayer meeting, we were looking and praying through Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is a psalm from David in repentance of what he has done with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and that adultery led to trying to cover it up by killing Bathsheba's husband and probably a few other men. And we came across this verse, David confessed, saying, I have sinned against the Lord, and the prophet Nathan replied to David, saying, and the Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die. And so as we were praying through this, as we were praying through Psalm 51, and we've seen that David's heart posture before the Lord went from one trying to cover up sin to one of how can I offend a holy God. And as we were looking at David and his repentance, one of the questions that came up was, is there a sin too great that God cannot forgive? Can we do something to take us out of the forgiveness of God? And well, I thought it was an appropriate question knowing that I was preaching on this passage this week. And so we will be in Matthew chapter 12, 22 through 32. Probably one of the most misconstrued, misinterpreted texts. One of the hard sayings of Jesus And so often we can jump to the end in what does it mean when Jesus says, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And we will get there later on in this sermon. But my prayer is this morning, and it has been all week, that in this text we would first find hope. This is a very hopeful text for us this morning. And secondly, that we would heed the warning of Jesus. Those are, this has been my prayer that we would find hope in this text, but also heed the warning of Jesus. So if you haven't already, would you please join me in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. And if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in front of you, and it's on page 1038. Again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we have the situation. Matthew opens up saying this, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could speak and see. 
Unlike some of the other miracles that Matthew records, this is very brief. It's very short. We don't have a whole lot of details. We don't have an understanding of how Jesus went about it. Did he touch the man? Did he send him away to clean in some water? Did he spit in his ears? We don't know. But what we do know is that however Jesus did this, he healed this man. He cast out a demon. He was blind and unable to speak, and God, Jesus, made him able to see and speak. So while there is very little detail, this is going to set off a chain of events and lead into the rest of this text this morning. But while I wanted to spend just a brief moment, there's a lot more to say about this one verse. One point I do want to make, though, is this. That even here we see Jesus' power over the spiritual realm, over, the, over disease in the dark spiritual realm, which will come in into great importance in just a little bit. And so this is the situation. Demon-possessed man who is blind and unable to speak comes before Jesus and Jesus heals him. Now we're going to go into verse 23 and 24. Two responses. The first response is in verse 23. All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? Thus far, Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus has calmed the winds and the waves. He's driven out other demons. He's healed the paralytic. He's brought a girl back from life. He's healed a man with a shriveled hand. He's healed a multitude of people at once. And it's this, the crowds were astonished. They were amazed. And they asked this question, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that the prophets foretold about? Is this the Savior that we've been looking for? This is the first response that we see, the one from the crowd, while they may be perplexed about who Jesus is, they lived and had an open mind to the realm of possibility that this man that is before them is the Messiah, is the one who comes to save his people. But we counter another response, a response from the Pharisees. Complete opposite response. In verse 24, the Pharisees heard this. They said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. This is a serious accusation from the Pharisees. They are concluding that Jesus is receiving his power from Satan. From the evil realm. Again, this is an accusation from the Pharisees onto Jesus. And we see both the crowd and the Pharisees, they're not disputing whether Jesus performed these miracles or not. They both agree, they both seen Jesus doing these miracles. The question at hand is where is he receiving his power from? And for the Pharisees, 
They said this cannot be from God, and so therefore the only other option would be from Belzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, maybe for us, if we were around and we were followers of Jesus, maybe we would get really defensive. Maybe we would want to offend or defend Jesus at the saying. But if we just jump back a few chapters, this saying from the Pharisees does not surprise Jesus. Is not, Jesus isn't taking back for in chapter 10. Starting in verse 24, he says this to his disciples before sending them out. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher, and a slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Belizable, how much more the members of his household. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows what they are going to say. And he's going to have a response to what they say. Before we get to that response, this leaves us with a theme that we'll pick up on in a little bit in verse 30. But this theme is, what response do you have? Do you have the response of the crowd of, is this the son of David? Or do you have a response of the Pharisees? That he is, he comes from Satan. He, his powers are from Belizebul, the ruler of the demons. So we have the situation at hand. We have two different responses in verses twenty-three and twenty-four. Now we have Jesus's response, and we're going to see he's going to come off with two rebuttals to the Pharisees which will lead into two implications followed by a conclusion. So, two rebuttals to the Pharisees' statement. First is found in verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every king divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What Jesus is saying is your argument, Pharisees, is so illogical that even from a worldly understanding, worldly wisdom, a kingdom, a city, or even a household divided against itself will not stand. Now, I found out earlier this week from my grandma that there's an important football game tonight. See, I don't watch a whole lot of football. But the few times I have watched football, I've never seen a lineman turn around and chase after his quarterback and try to tackle him. That team would not succeed in their mission of winning. It's illogical. It's foolish. And this is what Jesus is saying. That their argument... That Jesus receives his power from Belizebul is one of illogical, it's foolish, it's laughable. Now maybe we could say that, okay, maybe at some time Satan could have given Jesus the power to cast out this demon for a more diabolical plan. 
But as we have read through Matthew already, this isn't just a one-time occurrence. Jesus has done this over and over and over and over and over again. How could Satan and his kingdom, by allowing Jesus to do what he's doing, his kingdom would not stand? Jesus is going against what Satan's mission is. And so this argument from the Pharisees is very illogical. The second rebuttal is this, in verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Second point that Jesus makes, he's assuming, okay, if this is really true, if your accusations are really true, you know your followers those your sons, maybe not your biological sons, but those you are discipling, those who are following you. Yeah, I'm not the only one doing exorcisms. I'm not the only one casting out demons, but your followers are doing the same thing. So by what power do they do it? And never in a million years would a Pharisee put their own followers in the same league as Satan and the demons. And so, therefore, even their followers will show that Jesus' power does not come from Belizebul, but from the Holy Spirit of God. And so, we have these two rebuttals. And these two rebuttals will then lead into two implications. Matthew 28 and 29. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Oh, this is a great day. What Jesus is proclaiming is that He is the Messiah, that He is the King. And being the King, the kingdom has come. Our series has been entitled, Kingdom Come. We've seen how Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven here. And for the people listening, and even the Pharisees, as they would look to a Messiah, what Jesus is doing, casting out demons and healing, would be a part of what the Messiah does. For Isaiah 29, 18 says this, On that day, referring to the coming Messiah, the deaf will hear the words of a document, and out of the deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Or a few chapters later in Isaiah 35, 5-6, through six, again talking about the Messiah, the Redeemer, says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. We see Jesus is fulfilling the prophets from Isaiah and other writings. And we even see from the beginning of Jesus' birth, He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew describes the birth of Jesus in this way. He says, After His mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. 
But this isn't the only time we see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of Jesus. But if we fast forward a couple chapters in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Matthew records this. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heaven suddenly opened from him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like the dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom... I am well pleased. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and doing the work of the Holy Spirit declares that this is the Messiah. The one the prophets foretold about. And if this is the Messiah, He is the eternal King. In Jeremiah 23, 5-6, He says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will rise up a righteous branch from David... He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, Jesus is proclaiming, If I am the Messiah, I am also the coming king. And if I am the coming king, I have also come with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is everywhere that He rules and reigns in any place, in any age. The kingdom of God is coming with violence and conflict and triumph over the enemy. And we see this in verse 29. He continues, he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. See, Jesus is not just sitting on His heavenly throne being entertained by angels as they play the harp. No, He's come down. He's come down in front lines, kicking down the devil's door and setting the captives free. He has come and started at the incarnation, at the birth of Christ. Throughout His ministry, Jesus kept delivering blow after blow until finally on the cross, He delivered the final blow, the death blow to Satan. He has cleansed people of every disease. He has freed them from every kind of demonic control and oppression. He has demonstrated His power and authority over both death and sin. He has rescued the souls from hell. He has come into the dark world to enter the very house of Satan and successfully bind Him. He is stronger than Satan and He is able to defeat a legion of His demons. He is the Messiah. And He has secured the victory. And while Satan thought that he won while Christ was crucified and died on the cross, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that He was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has given the final death blow to Satan. And there's going to be a day that we wait where Christ will finally secure the victory over Satan because Christ is stronger than Satan. He is more powerful than Satan. Satan is powerless when it comes compared to Christ. Isn't this great hope? 
And so then this leads into the conclusion of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. And we're going to see that it starts with a decision, followed by a word of hope, and then a warning to be heed. So let's go into verse 30. The decision. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is laying out. He's saying that there is no neutral ground. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised earthly king, and the Son of Man, the promised heavenly king? Or not? See, we live in hostile territory. We live in enemy territory. There is no safe place. By remaining neutral, you're still on the enemy playground. And I know we live in such an age, this age of information, this age where we can gain so much and science is so relative that we start to adopt a pluralistic understanding of this world. Through TV, through social media, through searching on the internet, we can almost start to come and believe that maybe there's another way to heaven or there's another way to God besides Jesus. Or maybe we're just thinking, you know what? There's so many other great religious figures. Jesus is pretty much equal to those and he's just a good teacher. Or maybe you pick up your Bible and there's verses that you like as we heard earlier, like, Jesus is love, but then we come across a passage like this and rubs us the wrong way, so we just kind of get rid of it and we make Scripture what we want it to say. Or maybe we come across something in Scripture that doesn't align with our political worldview. Or maybe it's we start believing that Jesus' commands are only optional to live and to do. But what Jesus is calling us, if we are calling ourselves Christians, if we're calling ourselves Christ followers, if we're calling ourselves disciples of Christ, we must take Jesus at his word. And what he's saying is this, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutrality. You are either for Christ or against Christ. You cannot take a neutral stance. So what does it mean to be with Christ? How do we know that we can be a part of His kingdom and following after Him, be His disciples? It's been the message that has been repeated all throughout Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist pleads for the people, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus follows this and echoes this. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near in Matthew 4.17. Peter also echoes John and Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus. Christ is for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 9, uh, Romans 10, 9 through 10, Paul continues this plead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, you, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confess with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame. So if you are here this morning, maybe you've been dragged here, maybe you've been forced here, and you want nothing to do with God, I plead with you this morning, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning, think you're Mr. Middle of the Road or Miss Broad-Minded, trying to keep all options open. I want to plead with you, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And now you may be thinking, Drew, you don't know what I have done. I am, how could God ever forgive me? And this is the hope that we have found in our text this morning. I want to look at verses, the first half of 31 and 32. Jesus says these words, Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy. In verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. What? words of encouragement. What words of hope do you hear this? That for verse 31, this small word, every. Every. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy. What about getting your teenage girlfriend pregnant? Every sin will be forgiven. How about having an abortion? Every sin will be forgiven. How about cheating on your taxes? Every sin will be forgiven. How about receiving a DUI? Every sin is forgiven. What about cheating on your husband or wife? Every sin will be forgiven. How about loving money more than God? Every sin will be forgiven. How about experimenting with homosexuality? Every sin will be forgiven. What about murder? Every sin will be forgiven. Yes, every sin will be forgiven. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving all acceptance that Christ Jesus come, coming into this world, He came into this world to save sinners. No matter what you have done, Christ is able to forgive. And the man who penned these words was a man named Saul. He was a zealous Pharisee who persecuted the church. He pursued Christians, captured Christians, and sentenced them to death. And yet, Jesus took a hold of his heart, and he made him no longer Saul, but Paul. And instead of persecuting Christians, he sent him to proclaim this message that every sin was, will be forgiven. And in verse 32... This is, again, incredible that Jesus says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. Jesus does not take offense. Maybe we've said things, maybe we disbelieved of who Jesus is, maybe we even said something about who Jesus is. He says, even me, if you speak against me, I will still forgive you. The same Paul who wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15 also says this a few verses earlier. 
even though I was formerly a blasphemer, blasphemer, a persecute, an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of an in ignorance of an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. I guarantee that whatever you have done does not amount to what Paul has done. And he was forgiven and Christ is able to forgive you. This is amazing. And who does this? Who is able to forgive like Jesus is able to forgive? And the ultimate act of forgiveness was on the cross. As Jesus was on his way to be tortured and crucified, a man found with, without any guilt, an innocent man, who was led to a criminal's death, who was beaten, mocked, and spit upon, hanging between two other criminals, he says these words, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. Jesus says every sin and blasphemy, even if you speak against me, will be forgiven. What hope, what encouragement that is. May we come before our Lord and repent and believe that this is the Messiah, the one who has come to save. So I plead with you this morning, if you haven't, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We come now into the warning. At the end of verse 31 and 32, Jesus says these words, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And again in verse 32, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is this sin? Have I committed this sin? Let me give a definition to this. It's attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. When we contribute the work of Christ to evil, wicked, spiritual realm coming from Satan is what Jesus is talking about here. And if I can flesh this out and bring a little bit more of application for us this morning, we could say that it's a combination of clear knowledge and deliberate rejection of Christ. It's not mere unbelief, but a determined unbelief, a refusal after been given all of the evidence and complete understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. It's maybe someone who has grown up in this in a church, who have tasted the fruits of Christ, have seen who He is and have been given all the evidence and does not want to believe, is unrepentant, is determined in their unbelief and refusal 
to believe. One commentator puts it this way, For penance, they substitute hardening for confession plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has come hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention by the prompting of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. Brothers and sisters, if we come back to this, and within this context, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, religious rulers of this time. What he's saying is you don't understand the depth of forgiveness. You don't understand the depth of the gospel. How the gospel changes us. Brothers and sisters, even within those who have been a part of this congregation in the past in our history, we have seen men and women come and take leadership roles in very various ways, teach They know all the right answers. They know how to walk the Christian walk. They know how, what to say. And yet, for whatever situation, maybe they moved away, maybe another life situation comes out where they start slowly fading away from this church and they start thinking, I've served my time. I deserve heaven. I deserve eternal life. I've given enough to the church or to God. But brothers and sisters, they don't know the depth of the gospel. They don't know the life transformation of the gospel. When we encounter the gospel, He makes us dead into life. We were dead before the gospel, before Christ, and He's given us life. The prophet Ezekiel was brought to a valley of very dry bones. And God asked Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel replied, Lord God, only you know. So God said to Ezekiel, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you and make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. While I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, the bones coming together, bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to it that this is what the Lord God say may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, The breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. God is able to take bones and make them alive again. This is what He does. This is what the gospel does. He takes someone who was dead and breathes life into them, 
Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the rulers and the power of the air, the spirits now working in disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who was rich, and mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Have you experienced the power of the gospel? Have you seen how the gospel has transformed your life? It's no longer, I'm going to do these things, and if I do enough good, God will reward me. God has rewarded us through repentance, through Christ. Have we come to the cross and repented and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And can we give testimony and evidence of how He has given us new life in Christ? This is wonderful news. Brothers and sisters, May we take heed to this warning, though. May we not fall short of understanding the depth of the gospel. May we not accuse the work of Jesus Christ to be coming from the power of Satan, but is the work of God. Now, maybe you're here sitting here this morning, or you've come across this verse in the past, and always wondered, have I committed this sin? Has, have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Maybe it's given you much anxiety and worry. But I want to say, I think one commentator answers this well. It says, those who fear that they have committed this sin give a good sign that you have not. That is, if you are someone who has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, You won't care about the state of your soul because you've passed the point of no return. You are so self-deceived that if you've not only stopped believing in Jesus and some Holy Spirit, but you've actually thought yourself so wise, so beyond others, that you're now earning a nice living, writing best-selling books about why Jesus' miracles never happened or Jesus never said what we once thought he said. Such a person who at one point may have tasted the truth of the gospel, has now spit it out, and he or she wants others to spit it out as well. For such a person as this, there is no chance of forgiveness because there is no chance of a changed heart. This person's heart is so hard it cannot soften, it cannot and will not repent no matter how obvious the evidence, even if a dead man would rise again on the third day. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is warning about it. Brothers and sisters, if you're worried or anxious today, may that be a sign that you have a concern for your soul. May it be a sign that you have not committed this sin. And brothers and sisters, may we understand the glorious news that Jesus forgives all sin. And he invites us into the kingdom, 
his kingdom that he has brought near to us. So if you're here this morning, I plead with you one more time, if you haven't already, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow Him to give you new life, knowing that your sins can be forgiven. He has taken that punishment for Himself. He's taken the wrath of God on the cross upon Himself. Brothers and sisters, and if you're here this morning and you have repented and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may we find hope that He is doing a work in us, that He has given us new life. And while on this side of eternity we will not live a perfect life, may we trust in the gospel knowing that He has forgiven every sin. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what glorious news this is that you do forgive every sin and blasphemy. Father, by the power of your Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ, we can be saved. And so as we go throughout this week, as we're engaging in things of this world, as even as we get wounded and are tempted and maybe even fall into sin, may we know the gospel. May we come clinging to the cross, confessing our sin, knowing that you are eager to forgive us. May this week we even find the power of the gospel in and through our lives. This week. Praise in the name of Jesus Christ.